0: This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by Ovid.TV. Bringing together films from leading independent film distributors, Ovid.TV is the streaming service for social issue, documentary, and independent films largely unavailable anywhere else. Ovid.TV offers over 500 documentaries on the crucial topics of today. On the topic of healthcare and how it's related to racial justice, we recommend watching Power to Heal, a documentary which explores how Medicare was used to mount a dramatic, coordinated effort that desegregated thousands of hospitals across the country practically overnight. The American Anthropological Association calls it a moving story and an important film because the struggles for racial justice and access to health care continue. From now until November 25th, you can save 50% off the regular monthly subscription price. Just head over to www.ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code JACOBIN at checkout, and you will get Avidette TV for just $3.50 per month for three months.
1: Hello, welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. To end the racial disparities that have riven America from slavery until today... Bernie Sanders is clearly the best presidential candidate vying for the job. Hands down, not even a question. We organized a sold-out event in New York on September 29th to discuss what a President Sanders could do for racial justice in America. The event was at the Riverside Church in Harlem with Kienga Yamada-Taylor, Brianna Joy Gray, and Ariana Thornhill moderating. Kienga is an assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton and author most recently of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership, which was recently shortlisted for a National Book Award. Brianna Joy Gray is Bernie Sanders' press secretary and a former editor at The Intercept. And Ariana Thornhill is a member of Jacobin's board. Here's their discussion.
2: To extend a welcome to our audience here today and to our online audience. Welcome to What Could a Bernie Sanders Presidency Mean for Racial Justice in America? I'm Ariella Thornhill. I'm a member of the board at Jacobin Magazine. We at Jacobin are thrilled to host this event tonight. We're also very grateful for the co sponsorship and support of DSA's Afro Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus. <laughs> In particular, Bianca Cunningham and Jabari Breesport. Thank you guys very so much. <laughs> As most of us in the room, if not all, know, racism shapes every aspect of American life, from voting rights to education to health care. It is evident in policies that allow poor communities of color to go without clean water, sanitation, or clean air. It is clear when refugees are denied safe entry as they flee from US-funded violence abroad. It is embedded in climate policies that allow the wealthy to profit as poor people of color suffer the consequences of their greed. It is articulated through white supremacist violence and institutionalized through mass incarceration, redlining, and economic exploitation. It remains a primary method of dividing the working class and undermining class-based solidarity. Bernie Sanders has said his administration will, quote, go to war against white nationalism and racism in every aspect of our lives. And that, quote, when we combat white nationalism and when we combat racism, we are going to use all the laws in our power, including executive orders in every area, to make certain that we end the discrimination which now exists. He has also said he would be the quote, organizer-in-chief, encouraging movements from below to provide the pressure and support for his policies. So what would a Sanders presidency do for racial justice? What does it mean to fight for racial justice on every level? And what are the key differences between traditional approaches to change and Sanders' model of creating a movement from below? Our speakers tonight will address these questions and more. We'll start with some remarks from Kianga and Brianna, followed by a brief discussion between the three of us. We'll have time for audience questions after our discussion, but if you have a question at any time, please raise your hand and a volunteer will provide you an index card to write your question on. Then you can return it and they'll submit it to me. Thank you so much for being here. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker, our first speaker, Kianga Yamada Taylor. <laughs> 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 professor Kianga Yamada Taylor is a Jacobin columnist and an assistant professor at Princeton University's Department of African American Studies. She is the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and the forthcoming Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership. Her new book has already been long-listed for a National Book Award. I guess they know what they're doing. <laughs> Let's welcome Kianga
3: Yamada-Taylor. Thanks, everyone. Um, I wanted to stand. Um, Okay, Uh, I have uh, a few written remarks, maybe 10 minutes, Um, and then hopefully uh, between all of us and the things that we bring into this uh, conversation, we can have a uh, provocative, fruitful, dynamic conversation. There are things that are happening in this country that will make you angry, afraid, confused, and cynical. There's a white supremacist in the White House. There are detention camps on the border. The injustice of police killings have never left us. School districts threaten to remove children from homes where they have debt from unpaid lunch bills. There is much to be concerned and upset about, but just as it can feel as if these are the worst of times, we should remember that these are also the best of times. Today's climate strike is evidence that we have finally broken through on the issue of climate in the United States. (laughs) Tens of thousands of people mobilized themselves across this country to challenge the status quo that threatens to kill our species. We have so much more to do, but through the trenches of grassroots activism and sacrifice, the climate movement has finally broken through the hostility of the political and economic establishment to effectively sound the alarm that we are facing an existential crisis. The teacher strike wave from last year reminds us of the power of the working class, our class. The strike wave was a reminder that when our class is organized and united on picket lines and at workplaces, we have the power to redistribute the wealth and resources that we need to live better and more meaningful lives in this country. Over the last 5 years, we have learned that black protests, whether they are marches or rebellions, can make black lives matter. Those protests have exposed deep systemic roots of police of police racism, abuse and violence. And have created the conditions where the abolition of police and prisons is no longer a side conversation among a few activists, but has become part of a larger mainstream discussion about what real transformation could look like. And since the election, we have seen of Donald Trump in 2016, we have seen the rise in casual racist violence and hate crimes, but we have also seen the heroic resistance to this homegrown racist hatred. We saw it in the urgent mobilizations of ordinary people who went to airports across this country to use their bodies to shut down Trump's racist, hate-filled Muslim ban. We have seen it in the ways that ordinary people mobilize themselves to the southern border to protest the barbaric policies that have codified the racist abuse of migrant families, including babies and infants. We have seen it in the efforts of friends, families and neighbors who have put their bodies between our homegrown Gestapo, the ICE agents and those who come and those who they come to disappear into their maze of detention centers, tent prisons and cages. And in the last 5 years we have seen the emergence of our resistance, not the cheap trademark version of resistance that simply wants to replace a corrupt Trump with an inept Democrat, but a real resistance to the status quo in this country. Our resistance sees Trump as a symptom of a system of racist, inequality, waste, war, destruction, exploitation, and suffering. We want an end to the Trump regime, but we also want an end to capitalism. Enough is enough. The impossible ascendance of Sanders' campaign is the living expression of the hope and optimism of our resistance from below. His campaign is the culmination thus far of our collective efforts since occupied to shake this system to its core and transform the lives of millions of people who suffer under the boot of capitalism. In 2016, 13 million people voted for Sanders in the primaries. And during the election season, despite the spirited efforts of the mainstream media and the leadership of the Democratic Party in their efforts to bury his campaign, Bernie Sanders is in the thick of the race to run for president. It's not a gimmick. It's not a fad. It's not dumb luck. It is the deep desire for a better world. For once in our lives, we don't have to dread the ballot box. We don't have to hold our nose and hope for the best. The political establishment holds this campaign in utter contempt. They complain that Bernie says the same things over and over again. Medicare for all, free college, housing for all. But in doing so, they expose themselves as cynics and cranks who desperately cling to the status quo. And those of us who stand with Bernie and see ourselves as part of the political resistance in this country do so out of hope and possibility, not bitterness and despair. It is hope, it is the possibility of a better life. It is the possibility of a better world. We are not called to this movement based on the things that we don't want or based on the people that we don't want to vote for. For the first time in any of our lifetimes, we have a candidate for whom we can proudly vote for who has an actual chance to win. We have an opportunity to vote for the things that we want, and not just vote against the things that we don't want – universal health care, universal access to college, housing for all, an actual strategy to confront the climate crisis, jobs with living wages and union protections. And this is precisely why this campaign, despite the slights and derision, has attracted a broad audience of ordinary black youth and young black workers. They are attracted to the campaign for the simple reason that capitalism has failed the vast majority of poor and working class African Americans. Many of us have come to the realization that capitalism and its so-called colorblind market economy has never worked for us. It didn't work when we were bought and sold on the market. It hasn't worked when we have been either locked out or marginalized within the job market. It has not worked when we have been locked out or marginalized within the housing market. In fact, there is no golden age of American capitalism that we can point to and say, that's when African Americans benefited from this system. So when Sanders says the name of the system, and marks capitalism as the root of our hardship, at the root of our despair, at the root of our indebtedness, at the root of our dispossession, then he is speaking to us. And of course, he is talking to everyone who suffers from the oppression and exploitation at the heart of capitalism. But when racism compounds class inequality, he is speaking directly to us. What is unique about Sanders, though, is that he is, just not, he is not just talking to us, he is listening to us. In 2016, many of us said that we are with you, Bernie, when you point out the inequality at the heart of American society. We are with you on income inequality, universal health care, free college. But we want to also hear you talk about the ways in which this system targets black life. We want to hear you speak to the ways that racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia contributes to the victimization of black people, Latinx people, Arabs and Muslims in this country. We want you to understand the ways that the racist criminal justice system adds an entirely different dimension to the oppression of black and brown people in this country. We want you to understand how racism and xenophobia makes us vulnerable to hyper-exploitation that impedes our social mobility. We wanted you to speak to the intersection of race, class, gender, and sexuality, and the ways that when bound together, they create new dimensions of oppression and possibilities for exploitation, which means that we must pursue political and legislative responses that reflect this complex lived social reality. We said that we want to see more of us in your discussions about economic injustice and inequality. And Bernie Sanders' campaign saw us, they heard us, they communed with us, they met with us. And so we are now out here with them together, and this is our To become president tomorrow if we do not have a mass movement on the ground to fight for our political agenda we will not win a Sanders presidency will have to fight the white supremacists of the Republican Party and the neoliberals of the Democratic Party he will have to fight the millionaires in the Senate and the House and it means that we can't put our movements on hold to single-mindedly focus on the election alone we have to have a division of labor We can't sacrifice that which gives us our power, the social movements. And for those who say we can't do both, look at what happened today. Look at what has been going on over the last year. People are doing both. We have just witnessed again the biggest breakthrough in the climate movement in the United States today. For years, those deep in the movement have wondered when we could pierce the U.S. bubble. And so today was a turning point. The climate movement is here, and many of them are obviously with us. And so we have to do both, and that means organizing around immigrant rights, against police brutality, and the racist criminal justice system. It means fighting for the rights of trans women of color. These aren't particularist campaigns, these are the life and death struggles that we must engage to build a mass movement of the working class with the fight of the oppressed at the center of that. Comrades, we have a world to win.
2: you so much. Again, that's Professor Kianga Yamada-Taylor. I'd like to introduce our next speaker. Brianna Joy Gray is a contributing editor at Current Affairs and a senior politics editor at The Intercept. She is now the national press secretary for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. Please welcome Brianna Joy Gray.
4: so heartened to be here and um, less heartened to be following up that act. I was listening to that thinking, gosh, I should go work for the Bernie Sanders campaign.
3: <laughs> oh,
4: wait. <laughs> um, so for those of you uh, who don't know much about my story, I found the subject of this talk uh, an undeniable draw. Because the subject of what a Bernie Sanders presidency would mean for black America is exactly why I was drawn to the campaign in the first place. About a year and a half ago, I, I referred to myself as a civilian, uh, meaning that I wasn't involved at all in politics. I hadn't hardly been to but a handful of rallies um, before 2016. But what happened in 2016 is in large part what is happening again today, where I was confronted with a lot of narratives in the media that jarred extraordinarily with what my lived experiences were. As someone who, like many of you, saw Senator Sanders come along and speak articulately about values that I didn't really know could be shared by people in our mainstream political sphere to have someone come along and make simple statements of um, ethical and moral truths. Like the fact that human beings have value and their lives should be taken care of by medical professionals, regardless of how much money they have in their bank account. (laughs) Simple statements like, in the richest country, in the history of mankind, we shouldn't have 500,000 people sleeping on the streets every night. candidate who I don't know didn't support the death penalty <laughs> you, know? you know and now we are living in a remarkably different political landscape than we were three years ago but it's really important to remember that that didn't happen by accident it happened because there was somebody who came along and had the political courage to uh, stretch what the realm of political possibility was for us. Now, I like to joke that because I grew up as a Star Trek fan, the, <laughs> <laughs> the realm of political possibility has always been pretty broad for me. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a world thinking, oh it's crazy that someday we won't, aren't going to have money. I, I wasn't I was an eight-year-old thinking of it as socialism. I was an eight-year-old thinking of it as, oh yeah, okay, the replicator technology is going to come around and we're going to have to think of something better to do with our lives than, you know, do the common things we have to do to keep our society going. Um, and I, I joke about this but I do think on average if you look around and try to like put all like the good ethical moral people in one bucket and everybody else in the other, you have, a, you have a better outcome if you look to see who follows Star Trek if you want to anticipate who's going to be a solid human being, maybe even more predictive than even belonging to certain religious groups, controversial take but that's, you know, what my life experience has been like, so and I, and I think it's all about this realm of the possible, right and I think that in, a, in large part is the most difficult part of our job today. Because most people see themselves as ethical pe- human beings. Most people even who are very ideologically different from us, who identify as conservative or Republican or much farther away from us than people who are just identifying as mainstream liberals, they um, they bristle at the suggestion that they simply don't care about babies being caged at the border, right? And sometimes our, our dialogue get stagnated because we say, how could you not see this as a, as a moral, as, as a, a deeply moral issue, right? How could you stand by and let this happen? And they say, well, I don't want it, I don't want it to happen, but that's just the way the world is. You know, sometimes people want to come into our country and we don't have enough money for everyone, we don't have enough room for everyone, I'm struggling here, so if they come and we're com- competing for, for resources and therefore we, this, this cruelty that happens is a result of just how the world is there's nothing we can do. And so when we're talking about what a Bernie Sanders candidacy means for racism in America, what it also means to me is to say, to imagine a possibility where we um, broaden the pie and we have a sense of what's possible such that the consequences that are manifested in racist ways aren't so presumed to be a matter of fact, right? So there is, this, there is a simul- simultaneous narratives that I encounter constantly in my life. One is to say, racism is horrible, how are you gonna end racism by 2020? That's frustrating, right? Because if you perceive that all all of the problems that we're engaging with, um, Donald Trump's white nationalism, uh, which is a symptom of a broader racist society as opposed to the um, sum total of it as it's sometimes characterized um, by the media, well, then what are we going to do about it? How are we going to cure everybody of racism by 2020? So we get Trump out of office, right? And also, how do we get Trump in the first place when we had a four years before, and was America just magically not racist then, right? We get into these very simplistic dialogues about what racism means, how to solve it, etc. You have a culture and a community that says, well, the reason, the way we're going to get rid of racism is to get public figures to say, stop being racist, racism is bad. Okay, I mean, it's worth a shot. But at the same time, people have an understanding of the fact that these are structural is- issues, right? That there are implicit biases. There are people who are making choices and hurting others for reasons that they don't, aren't even necessarily conscious. We talk about institutional racism, right? We say things like, uh, certain communities can't be racist because um, racism is power plus privilege. And yet, in all of that conversation, what actually constitutes that power remains largely absent. And what drew me as a black woman to the Bernie Sanders campaign was that there's an articulation of what that power means. That there's a conversation about class and economics that is often and has historically been divorced from this conversation about race. And so that the conversation about race that sometimes gets dimened and stagnated, that says, what are we going to do about the border? I don't know. This is just how it is. What are we going to do about institutional racism? I don't know. That's just how it is. Or we say, these people are terrible. Let's ostracize them from society. Let's try to hunt them out somehow in ways that we know that aren't actually possible. When you start to integrate a class analysis to it, you start coming up with actual solutions. You say, oh, well, people are at each other's throats because there's a scarcity. They they perceive there to be a scarcity of resources. They perceive their lives not getting better over the course of time, that they are the first generations that are doing worse off than their parents. Okay, well, what is the root cause of that? Oh, well, it turns out that in the 1970s, the gap between CEO and employer pay was uh, 1 to 30. Any guesses about what it is today? You guys have been watching those Bernie videos. (laughs) Yeah, it's about 300 to 1. Um, And you look at the fact that over the past 30 years, 85% of profit in this country, an incredibly profitable country, has been going to the top 1%. And then you look at what our our friends on the right have been doing, pointing the finger at everybody but the folks who are actually responsible for that kind of dramatic income inequality. So if you really want to talk about getting rid of racism, if you really want to talk about figuring out how to get people not to be harboring all of these sentiments that are driving the um, fascist movements all across the world, you have to be really honest about why the pie seems to be shrinking when once again we are the wealthiest country in the history of the world and we all know there's enough pie to eat. And you cannot, in my view, claim to be uh, anti-racist, to have a genuine investment in creating more racial equality in this country. If you're unwilling to engage with the class aspect, that ends up being the bully pulpit that divides a coalition that actually could create substantive equality for all of us across the board. And so what's really heartening to me about the Sanders campaign is that finally we're presented with policy solutions that actually address both racial disparities and economic disparities. I challenge you to look at any of our policies and find the uh, sections that don't directly address racial, gender, sexuality, uh, physical ability, every metric of uh, identity you can imagine incorporating to each. The climate policy, whether it's our labor policy, whether it's our housing policy. There are um, you know, the members of the disability community have actually come up to us and said I'm actually amazed that there, I don't need to go, there's no, the idea of having like a, a, a disability rights section on the website doesn't even make sense because these things are so intertwined. And so what I I hope we'll be able to get into today a little bit is how we're able to have conversations about race that um, are genuinely intersectional, despite the fact that that word is used frequently. It often is used as a um, bully pulpit to um, divorce it from a conversation about class as one of those intersectional prongs and therefore puts us in this kind of holding pattern where we all are kind of in agreement that racism is bad and we need to get past it. But which kind of binds our hands which, uh, when it comes to solutions about actually how we're going to get to where we need to go as a country and as a society and as a world, because these are, in fact, global problems. So thank you, and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation.
1: Again,
2: Brianna Joy Gray. Let's thank both speakers again for their incredible remarks tonight. So we're gonna open it up for a discussion between the two speakers and myself. Um, I'd like to remind you that if you have any questions at any point, raise your hands. You'll be provided an index card from our generous volunteers, and then they will uh, provide me with your question after you've written it down. Um, So I'd like to start with what I think may be the most challenging component of a Sanders presidency, Um, and it's twofold. One of the main conceits of Sanders' campaign is that corporate money in politics has created a government that operates only in the interests of the ruling class and the top 1% of elites in this country. Um, He's very clear that those are his enemies. That's who he's taking on. And yet, he's also going to be working to pass and implement national policies in a country whose state power allows for the local resistance and refusal to implement them. How does his idea of a movement from below coupled with um, his role as an organizer in chief change the parameters of that challenge?
4: Yeah, so I, I really love this question because, you know, Bernie Sanders says, it's not me, it's us. He says, it's gonna take a movement and sometimes people cheer, because it sounds great, and then sometimes people follow up and say, well, what does that actually mean? You know, What does that actually look like? Because we don't really have much in the way of a model for that. And I think a lot of us were very hopeful um, uh, after Barack Obama's um, election, that the kind of movement that was promised there was gonna manifest in the ways that is kind of being promised now. And what we saw was the dismantling of Obama's organizing um, machine. And with it dissolved a lot of the promise that it held. And so one main thing that we're talking about when we say we need a movement um, is that we are not going to do that. Um, That when Bernie Sanders says he's going to be an organizer in chief, he's saying that despite the fact that the Democratic Party often is very um, Suspicious or uh, deters uh, its members from directly taking on incumbents, from directly challenging other uh, con- Congress people, even on the other side of the aisle. Bernie Sanders says and has already done: um, I will go to Mitch McConnell's district. I will hold a rally with thousands of people in his literal backyard or figurative backyard. We'll see how we'll see how gully he feels. <laughs> And will challenge him to respond to the fact that his constituents actually want largely what all Americans want, right? When we're talking about a popul- populist movement, the power in that is that overwhelming majority of Americans, including in Red America, actually want things like a Green New Deal. 80% of Americans support a Green New Deal. Okay? You know, upwards of 70% of Americans support Medicare for All. So what that does is it empowers you to actually go into these people's districts and challenge their seats if they do not comply. And you can only do that if you're running on a platform that the people actually support. And the reason we haven't seen more of that in the past is because, frankly, neither party has offered much in the way of substantive change and something that would make you feel so inclined to come out on the end of a hard day at multiple jobs you may or may not be working and stand on Mitch McConnell's porch and ask him to actually represent you the way he's supposed to be doing in Congress.
3: Standing on Mitch McConnell's <laughs> porch, drinking mint juleps. Um... <laughs> So I, I think that uh, you know Congress operates a, in its own bubble. Um, I think the, the average wealth of uh, a U.S. senator is three million dollars. Uh, the average wealth of uh, someone in the House, I think, is uh, close to a million dollars, nine hundred ninety thousand um, dollars, which is you know it creates its its own bubble that is completely distinct from uh, the experiences of the vast majority of people. Uh, in this country. And so it's important to uh, challenge those electorally where it's possible. But I also think that we have to think about uh, the the role of of grassroots movements around uh, these particular different types of issues um, that are important, particularly around, if we wanted to focus on uh, universal health care, there are lots of institutions, political elected officials, representatives uh, in both parties that are so deeply vested in the status quo, which is why this has been such a difficult issue to get any movement on, even though the polls around support for universal health care, this is not new. This is, for years, vast majorities, over 60 percent of people in this country have wanted some kind of uh, public Uh, 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 state-financed, controlled healthcare because the costs of healthcare uh, have been unmanageable for decades. And the reason why that doesn't happen is not because of some partisan uh, mismatch in in Congress. It's because there's a bipartisan effort to maintain that. And so we have to have uh, uh, an actual grassroots movement, a mass movement, Um, that is rooted in workplaces that is connected to to, uh, workplace organizations as well as student organizations to create the kind of pressure that won't let Congress get away uh, with some kind of cheap deal uh, uh, on on this question. And that means that we have to think beyond just the rally, or we have to think beyond just the demonstration and think about what kind of movements and organizing are we engaged in on a day-to-day basis uh, that make sure that there are clear entry points into political activism for ordinary people who want to know, yes, I'm inspired by this or that action, but how do I get involved? How do I make this something uh, uh, that is mine? And I think that that's the next... Uh, step in things that we have to, to, to go is not just the, the mobilization. The mobilizations are incredibly important because it brings people together. It's a demonstration of our force. It's a demonstration of the public's will, um, which is very important. But then we also have to figure out what are we doing in the aftermath of that, uh, which is really the guts and heart of what a mass movement is, and how do we sustain that over time? Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to pick up on um, one of the points you just made. I was
4: actually at um, an event for CBC last week, the Congressional Black Caucus.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
4: I was. I was at an event, and um, Roland, I, Roland Martin actually made a, made this point uh, about um, uh, protesting. And he said, too many times we get into the situation where we're very proud of the number of people that we were able to put in in the streets. I think he was specifically talking about the Women's March, and Linda Susser was on this panel. And at the end, I will ask the organizer, well, how many names and, and contact information did you collect? And they'll say, houseway <laughs> like, what's that exactly you know and and they the kind of the the next step beyond the mobilization has kind of gotten left behind and so one of the things another example of kind of what what we mean when we're talking about this campaign in terms of a movement is that we have a lot of information, right? We have, um, you know, a lot of information that we're able to use to text people and mobilize people, etc. And one of the things I'm very proud of is that this campaign has been using it to direct people to support striking workers, right? it's using political will and capital, right? Because you know you guys have been getting those emails that at a certain point, you're like, all right, that's enough, for any like I did what I could do. <laughs> but like every, every time you send that text, every time you send that email, you know, you're, you're potentially alienating someone who you might need down the line. But to abuse your political capital in that way for events that offer no political expediency for you whatsoever, but which ultimately start to engender trust in a community that is going to be served by the policies that you're putting out there, that is an act of solidarity building, right? That is what we're talking about when we say we're building a movement. That is how you get to a place where you get someone who might have been distrustful of you because you come from a different background, whether it's a, your different racial background or gender background or sexuality, et cetera, to say, okay, well, I can't think of this person in such black and white terms because they were literally standing side by side with me um, protesting whatever inequity we're protesting testing in this particular workspace, right? So I, I, I do think that there is a, um, sometimes there is a, you know, a, a, how are you going to do this? What are we going to, you know, what does this look like? Question that's raised when we are putting it into action right now in the course of this campaign. And the fact that we are even having these conversations in the debate stage, the fact that we, uh, they're now asked, you know, what do you think the biggest foreign policy threat to America is? And over 50% of the candidates are now saying climate change. When Bernie Sanders said that three years ago and was heckled and laughed at by the pundit you know for an entire like news cycle you know that is because of putting into action and supporting these kind of movements even when you're off the campaign cycle and that to me is one of the biggest selling points as well is that you know people want to know that you're going to be there for them when it doesn't do anything for you Um, and movements don't die when you're elected if they're really a movement right and they don't and we didn't have this movement die just because Bernie Sanders lost in 2016 and that gives me a lot of hope
2: So, some people defend means-tested programs, those are ones that we historically associate with targeting specific minority groups and um, providing either support or increased um, funding for those communities. Some people defend them because they target those who are most in need and thus dispense money more efficiently, so the claim says. Socialists typically push for universal programs, programs that are accessible by all. Can you speak to the strategy of the Sanders campaign in focusing on universal programs, and can you elaborate on how those programs can change the conditions of class struggle rather than just the material conditions for those people who use those programs?
4: Yeah, I, I really like this point, and I think this is such an important political question, right? So sometimes Senator Sanders gets characterized as kind of like a dreamer, and that things are pie in the sky, and this how are you going to do X, Y, and Z question gets asked. Um, And the irony is that that gets asked more often about his universal policies than anything else, even though the fact of pursuing a universal policy is in and of itself an incredible political strategic move. And here and here, this is this is the reason why I mean I know a lot of people in this room are, are experts they you know you guys are you know the DS, the DSA crowd knows a lot about what that this stuff means already um, But for for people who are watching, you know. So a means-tested program, a program is a program that administers goods based on the economic status of the person looking for it, right? So you only qualify for X, Y, and Z. You only qualify for um, SNAP. You only qualify for certain kind of assistance if you are below a certain income threshold. Universal program, like Social Security says, no matter what, when you hit a certain age, you're going to get this this benefit. The benefit of having a universal program is that everybody in society gets it. So everybody in society is bought in. And what happens because of political inertia is once you establish a program like that, everyone is very reluctant to have it taken away. Right? Everybody's grandmother is on Social Security. Everybody relies on it some, in some way, shape, or form. And so when it comes under threat, you're able to mobilize a huge, um, massive people to push back against it. Meanwhile, means-tested programs, is very easy to say, as we're very familiar with what happened in the 1980s and 90s, and currently, um, is that there's a lot of hand-wringing and moralizing about the undeserving poor who receive those programs. Welfare Queens, Cadillacs, etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, you've heard it all before. So there are some people who might say, why cancel everybody's student debt? There's some people who are able to make a good amount of money, who are able to keep up with their loan payments, um, and they don't need it. Uh, and aren't you wasting a ton of money canceling those people's debts? Well, I would argue on several mm, points there. One is that the overwhelming majority of student debt is by people who make not very much money at all, right? The average American graduates with $30,000 worth of debt. I would increasingly, I would also argue that um, a lot of the people who do earn larger salaries because they took out a lot of student debt are in those jobs because they have to pay off their student debt. Now, I'm, I'm, it's a bit of a personal issue for me because that's the, sp- the spot I was stuck in, right? I was a lawyer. I did not want to be a lawyer. I desperately wanted to stop being a lawyer, but I also had to keep up with a $2,300 a monthly payment, right? And what kind of job was I going to take that was going to be able to let me keep up with that, right? And so, when you want to, we talk about maternal mortality rates and wanting to incentivize doctors, particularly Black and Brown doctors, to go back into communities and serve those communities. You have to unleash them from their financial tethers, right? And it enabled them to take a lower paying job. But the most important point here and the point of this question is that once everybody is bought in, everybody is invested in it, suddenly you go from having a sliver of the population who's invested in this student debt, ca- debt cancellation to everybody understanding what's going on and that they're going to be impacted as well. Moreover, it's a much easier argument to make. So our student debt cancellation plan can be summed up as such. Do you have student debt? It's cancelled. <laughs> plans, and I won't name names, but there, are, there is, you know, another candidate whose plan can be basically summed up as if you, you can get up to $20,000 of your debt canceled if you start a business in a low-income community that lasts for three years and your debt comes from Pell Grants. I think, that, I think I got all the points, but it's I... It's catchier, the second one, actually. <laughs> got it I mean, there. And, and, you, and for years, for years, Americans have been sold on these kind of technocratic, neoliberal policies, and then you ask why people aren't inspired to come out to the polls at the end of a long day. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a, a, a benefit in simplicity and clarity, and there's a benefit in terms of how much buy-in you have from the public when you present things this way.
3: I also think that this is an opportunity that we have to think differently, um, about some of these things and to not uh, also be constrained by um, the kind of inbuilt constraints that uh, exist. So I think that you know, universal programs are important but we also have to pay attention to the ways that uh, there's disproportionate harm that exists in this country. So something like social security that everyone pays into and everyone receives also reflects the inequality that African Americans in particular have experienced through the job market over the course of a lifetime. Uh, And so then it becomes an issue of how are we repairing particular aspects uh, of racism and inequality that exist in some communities among some groups of people um, and not others. And I think that sometimes that that has been even if we talk about the the uh, the uh, universal health care, that in and of itself doesn't deal with uh, the way that health care can be uh, delivered, um, meaning that uh, black maternal uh, death, for example. Uh, is a a situation that cuts across issues of class, that affects all classes of black women. And this has to do with racism in the medical care uh, uh, profession, and that has to be dealt with um, specifically. And so I think that we have to be sure that when we are talking about universal uh, programs, which are important, that we also recognize the particular ways that black and brown people experience uh, uh, racism, oppression, and inequality in this country, and that that has to also be specifically uh, uh, addressed in the here and now, but then beyond that, I think that in part of, for me, part of the, the excitement about the campaign is about thinking beyond what we have been told we have the ability To think beyond, and so in the same way that a discussion, uh, a mainstream discussion, has opened up about uh, uh, universal health care, about free college, and now about uh, a a potential housing guarantee, housing for uh, um, everyone, I think that we have to think about, you know, talk about the ways that the resources. uh, that are used in this country. We give the, the the federal government appropriates almost a trillion dollars to the defense, uh, to the Department of Defense in this country. It's a number so big that it's difficult to get your head around. We have to talk about what the redistribution of that, those public uh, resources could look like when we're talking about the problems with uh, 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 social welfare. In health care and, and, and child care and all of these things um, in this country. And so I think that we can't just accept the, the, the constraints that are imposed on us in terms of what is possible, that now's an opportunity uh, to think about, think beyond what is possible and start talking about the things that we actually want.
4: I think that's a, a really good point. That there's there's this argument that's been had, and we've we've talked about this a little. This um, this cri- the critique of the universal is that historically these universal programs have left people behind, and that is an accurate critique. Um, but there are two ways you can go with a response. One response can be to say, okay, the rising tide didn't lift all ships, um, so. Screw tides. <laughs> um, we're not going to do universal programs at all. Every woman for herself, I, I guess. Um, and then the other the other approach, which I would support, is to say, OK, well, if the rising tide didn't la- raise all those ships because there were holes in the boat, let's plug the holes and design programs that are intersectional that actually anticipate and look to the historical feelings of other programs um, and do a better job. And so I want to really credit that critique of uh, what universal programs have done in the past that was destructive and widening gaps because they are not a panacea. Um, but that is, that, the answer to that is not to say poo-poo universal programs. It's to say that we have to do what this campaign has worked really hard to do, um, which is to keep all of those different populations in mind and the ways in which the tide is going to affect them differently and make sure that we don't make those mistakes again.
2: Which means expanding our horizon of what we think is possible through universal programs, I think, Mm -hmm. and how they're enacted. Thank you both so much. So we have some prepared questions from some groups um, that I received prior to the event, and they're sort of broken down into areas of focus, so I'm going to ask them together. Um, The first is from Housing Organizers for Empowerment, who write... It can sometimes feel like the conversation around racial justice focuses on criminal justice reform. But as black and brown tenants know, that housing policy in this country has been shaped by systematic racism and that has led to a housing crisis in cities across America. As a solution, some advocates have conflated affordable housing and workforce housing. That is combining homelessness, low income, and middle class needs together. How does such an approach sufficiently address the complexities of the debate, or are cities more successful when they address these issues separately? And how would a Sanders presidency approach these issues? Uh, we just had one housing question. apologies.:
4: um, So I think a, uh, the question might have come before the housing policy uh, dropped yeah, this, I think it was this week, so) forward. Housing for all uh, is the headline. Good job interpreting <laughs> it, it was all <laughs> planned. Um, but look, the, here, here's, here's the stats. There's 500,000 homeless people in America. Um, there are 18 million Americans who cannot, um, who are paying more than 50% of their income to housing. Um, there is not a single state in this country where a person uh, earning, uh, for working 40 hours a week at a minimum wage salary can afford a one-bedroom apartment. And at the same time, you have uh, cities like San Francisco with sky-high rent and incredible amounts of vacancies, right? So the policy does break out discreetly um, Those the various interests, um, the, the the unique concerns of the homeless population, the unique concerns of low-income people, the unique concerns of people who want to be first-time home buyers uh, across a kind of an economic spectrum. Um, it does things like create a vacancy tax um, so that people have to pay for keeping these homes empty. Um, it uh, invests an enormous amount of money into covering the housing deficit and encouraging new um, homes to be built that are also green homes because, again, all these things are intersectionally devi- um, devised. Um, And it's a policy that takes seriously the idea of housing as a human right. There are some things that we're willingness to pay, many things, We're willingness to pay it is not equal in ability to pay. And if there's certain basic interests like food, shelter, and an ability to keep a roof over your head, then we need to provide those as a society. And one last intersectional point is I was speaking to a doctor for our um, podcast, the campaign's podcast called Hear the Burn, which I host, which everyone should subscribe to right now on your phone. <laughs> um, and I, we were talking about the mater- maternal mortality rate. And he said, you know what, I have these um, uh, patients coming in to me for their maternity checkups, and every time they come in, they have to fill out a new address. And that that kind of housing instability has an enormous effect on what's happening with these women's pregnancies and their survival rates and the survival rates of their children. Um, So this is not a, a... a frivolous this is not we don't we there's, there are those who would say gosh Bernie just thinks everything's a human right and is going to give us all these things for free I mean well when you know that whether someone else has, someone has stable housing can mean life or death for themselves or their children I would say well the hell yes this is a human right and we're going to provide it and to that end you have Black
2: women being jailed for essentially being homeless and trying to get their child into a public school yes. out of their district. Right. Um, so yeah, it absolutely all interlinks. Um, our next question is from Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus. There they are. <laughs> Bernie's campaign excites so many people because of his promise to address economic inequality in America. A large part of this inequality stems from our country's legacy of slavery and colonialism. With this fact in mind, DSA's Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color caucus has invested time and energy into contemplating reparations as a policy and how that policy could be enacted in our time. Sanders initially opposed reparations for slavery as divisive and has since pressured, and has since been pressured to support Congressman Conyer's HR-40 bill which will study reparations. Bernie has said, quote, if a reparations bill comes across my desk, I will sign it. This comment suggests that he won't actively join in the fight for reparations, or actively oppose it either. Given these mixed messages, we wonder how a Sanders presidency would address the issue of reparations, if at all. What does a socialist reparations program look like for you? And, what accountability mechanisms can be set up within a socialist Sanders administration to ensure the demands of working class communities of color, like reparations,
4: are listened to and fought for. Bernie Sanders, like everybody else in this race, you know, supports H.R. 40. I don't know that I agree with the characterization of how he came to supporting H.R. 40. But, you know, there was a reparations hearing a couple of months ago in Washington, D.C., and one of our surrogates, um, Danny Glover, was the main speaker on behalf of the bill. Um, And so there have been efforts in the past that Senator Sanders has supported, reparations efforts such as the 2010 um, bill to restore reparations, to give reparations to black farmers who had been hurt by, um, who had been basically systemically um, robbed uh, by the government. Um, we also have plans that do things like, for example, not just legalize marijuana and uh, expunge records, but to say that uh, the pro- the proceeds going forward from these ma- marijuana sales have to be disproportionately given to the communities that have been disproportionately harmed from them. You can't have people sitting in jail, you know, who have been sitting in jail for the exact same thing that a bunch of disproportionately white people are about to make a lot of money off of. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the way it works. I have classmates who are currently ramping up to be in the, classmates from Harvard Law School who are ramping up to be in the marijuana industry and I feel some kind of way about it.
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Gotta end that student debt somehow. I mean. If it's
4: not (laughs) (laughs) Bernie's plan. Fair fair enough. Um, But this question, and and we've talked about this a little bit and so I don't, you know, I'm curious to know what you think. Uh, This question of, uh, I understand this kind of, like the the impulse to want something given how many things have specifically hurt black people in this country, specifically because you're black, to have plans that specifically help us because we're black. And there are aspects of so many of these plans that address the fact that there are specific racial harms like the redlining plan. And I think the goal of HR 40 is to say, how can we go about finding what all of those avenues are, what all of the possibilities are to find those redress and accommodate them, right? You know we're we're a campaign that focuses more than any other on the excesses of corporate power, the ways that corporations specifically have benefited from slavery. You know the 1619 project has surfaced all kinds of interesting factoids, like the fact that at a certain point in American history, if you total the value of all of the corporations and all of the railroads in the country, they didn't equal the value of slave labor, right? And that the value of that the value of that slave labor was being sold and traded all over the world, so that it wasn't even isolated to an American phenomenon. On. You know, the entire globe is benefiting off of slave labor. Aetna, the insurance company, recently had to apologize for insuring slave the, the, the enslaved people, um, to insure slave owners for the value of enslaved people. So if they die, the slave owner gets paid out. Right? And these companies persist and, you know, oppress they us. They should apologize.
3: Way. They should pay. They should pay. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So I would I'm um, Socialists for reparations. Um, I think. I mean, I think reparations are important for uh, a number of reasons. One is that um, we can identify many of the organizations and institutions that were connected to uh, the slave trade, the ways in which they profited from uh, the slave trade. We can begin with the U.S. government, and so often the the critics of reparations, you know, oh. How will we know? How will we figure any of this out? Many times in, in black families, people actually know what generation, who uh, was enslaved, where, so on and so forth. So it's it's not as mysterious as um, it's made out to be. But I think that politically, uh, there's an important um, reason to uh, support um, a struggle around reparations and the payment of reparations itself. And we should say that a, a healthy majority, around 60% of African-Americans, uh, not, not only want reparations as you know, uh, an acknowledgement that racism uh, exists, or that slavery existed and, and slavery was a thing, but they, black people want money. Um, black people want to be paid. Uh, they want cash for reparations. Um, and so I, th- I think that that is an important, um, uh, it's an important thing to say, that um, it's this is not some weird political hangover from the 1960s that people drag up generationally, you know, at weird periodic times, um, but that this is uh, uh, something that African Americans actually believe in. The second thing is that, a fight around reparations, to me, is about educating white people in this country about racism, slavery, and its relationship historically to the conditions that we find in this country today. And it's not just about slavery, although I think that's a good place to start because there is such profound ignorance in this country about the institution uh, uh, of, of slavery, um, but it's also about. Uh, the ways that the slavery bequeaths to generations thereafter, racism, which is then uh, 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 perpetuated in such ways uh, as to um, uh, impact the lives of uh, African Americans in particular uh, well into the 21st Uh, So we talk about the history of redlining, we talk about uh, job discrimination, we talk about all the manifestations of this that uh, have led to uh, twice as many black people being unemployed since the 1950s uh, as white people, no matter the condition of the economy, the concentration uh, of disproportionate levels uh, of of poverty, so on and so forth, all connected to racism, all connected to the institution. of, of, of slavery. And so it's just as important in terms of the education of the public, and, so, and not to beat people over the head or educate yourself so you can have more interesting uh, dinnertime conversations, but to really understand also the connection between racism uh, and what happens to the lives of ordinary white people. Um, in this country. Because poverty, for example, has been so racialized in this country, we ignore the fact that there are huge swaths of poverty uh, among ordinary white people. There are 20 million poor white people in this country. The, The life expectancy of white people in the United States has gone into reverse for men and women. This does not happen in the developed world. And it is driven by alcoholism, opioid addiction, and suicide. And we can't even talk about it because poverty is a black thing. And so the, the, the ignorance around racism, uh, uh, slavery, and its history, and how it affects the, the, the lives of ordinary white people, is a problem politically. And so the fight around reparations is about understanding this history. It's about connecting it to the, 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 the contemporary situation That we're in, and so I think that you know, for me, that is why uh, it's an important, uh, it's an important struggle. I wrote about this in in Jacobin. I think it's called the Consequences of Forgetting. Check it out, Jacobin.com.
2: I want to thank everybody who showed up to the event tonight, including the viewers online. Um, we'd love to give a huge thanks to Brianna and Kianga.
1: The vast majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to the vast majority and to all the jacobin radio podcasts on itunes or stitcher and you can always read us at jacobinmag.com